0: The views expressed in this program are those of the participants.
1: Hmm. I haven't seen any crops or livestock. I wonder where they get this.
2: Goldak. toma. He says the soil here isn't good for planting. Goldak valaki herata tiba The Valachians don't let them live where the land is fertile. The Valachians give them whatever they need, food, clothing, medicine. He says the Wallachians are good to them. They protect them.
3: Welcome everyone, it's Thursday, February 25th, 2016. I'm Bob Metz. And I'm Robert Vaughn. And this is Just Right on WBCQ 5.11 Omegahertz. Join us for an hour of discussion that's not right-wing,
4: it's just right. Fade into color,
3: color into black and white. Under the clothes, everything will be alright. I didn't want the month of February to get away from us without commenting on a prevailing theme that we see in our media during the month, and that is black history. February, of course, is the month set aside, now officially, believe it or not, by Ontario's Premier Kathleen Wynne, as I understand, to celebrate black history. And, uh, of course, this is all in an effort to fight what the government is calling racism. I guess we're supposed to be terrified of this thing called racism. And uh, racism's just one of the many things we're taught to fear. And I think, in so doing, the solution to racism eludes us. But speaking of fear, I understand uh, you have something to say on that subject too, Robert. In the last half of the hour, Bob, I'm going to be talking about what we should be afraid of, if it's not fear itself. Interesting. Interesting. But first our reminder, write, you can write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org, follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, subscribe to Just Right on iTunes, hear us on WBCQ 5.11 MHz, or visit us at www.justrightmedia.org. It's been a long time since we last took a look at this issue, and given the ridiculous assertions made over this past month in the city that I live in, London, Ontario, that the city is a hub of racism. Did you know that, Robert? We're yes, a hub actually, of I did. Yeah, you knew that? Yeah, we are a hub of racism. Are we?
4: Yeah. Oh, interesting. But it's not who you think. <laughs> oh, okay.
3: Well, I thought we'd say something to explain where these assertions are coming from and why they originate. Um, we last, last took a look at this issue in 2010 on February 11th, show number 138, where we took a look at the history of Black History Month. We took a look at the history of history, and that was another part of this discussion I wanted to bring up again. We looked at poverty and race, we took a look at that Africa, affirmative action, and I recall at that time I opened up with the following comment uh, about Black History Month, that it is an entirely political invention created to serve political ends. It was an extension of Negro History Week in the United States, 1926, it was expanded, after whites became interested in the, the, the whole issue as a means of gaining the black votes to support their political policies. Sounds like the same reasons we're pushing it today. Yes. Now, as I said then, I'm unaware of, uh, of a white history month. I know of no yellow history month. I know of no red history month. Is there a mulatto history month? Is there a 25% mixed-race history month? <laughs> no, but there is a black history month. Isn't that interesting just in and of itself? I never knew skin color could actually have its own history. And as I said then, and I'm saying again today, black is simply not a valid adjective to place in front of the word history because it's a nonsensical term. It's like, as I said, the isosceles triangle is green. (laughs) Remember that statement? It's meaningless, and it's a false issue. So on February 6th of this year, 2016, when the London Free Press ran a full-page plus story on a, quote, celebration of black history, they cited actor E.B. Smith's portrayal as Martin Luther King playing in the Grand Theatre's production of The Mountaintop. And we as Londoners were once again being told in this article that the community is racist in what should have just been an announcement of Black History Month events and celebrations. Quote, If only Smith and other actors of African-American heritage could count on such regular employment the rest of the year, wrote reporter Joe Belanger, that Martin Luther King Jr.'s work is far from done was underlined in stinging irony when Smith and co-star Beryl Bain were the targets of two recent racial slurs. And, uh, And, quote, Uh, Apparently Smith uh, reported not one, but two separate incidents of being called the N-word during his brief stay in London, and it has been met with a great deal of community skepticism and disbelief. Yeah, I don't believe it. No, and neither did most of the callers who called in, for example, on CFPLAM's Andrew Lawton show, including Andrew himself. Everyone was skeptical, including the black people that called in (laughs) who have lived in London all their lives and say it it happens, but it's so rare, and it's so rarely related to race. So, another article, Sharp Elbow of Truth Reads the Headline London Free Press Commentary by Larry Cornies on February 6th. Um, Many Londoners believe incidents of racism in the city are overblown. They shouldn't, he insists. And he writes, Occasionally there comes a moment when sleepy denial is disturbed by the sharp elbow of truth. When it comes to racism in London, that moment came this week. To make his case, Corney cites the famous tossed banana in the direction of a black Philadelphia Flyers forward during a preseason hockey game in London. We talked about that on the show over two episodes, and we found it was nothing to do with racism. The poor fellow that tossed a banana didn't even know it had a racist implication. I still don't know that it does. No, I, I don't <laughs> get that either. Uh, he cites the use of the N-word by another city councillor who used it to disparage the Katy Perry bus ads that offended her. Remember that? Hmm. Um, he cites a defacement of a black candidate's election signs with graffiti and racist images. Now, I might agree that's a racist thing to do, but does it mean that the city's racist? Certainly defacing a, a, a politician's sign is not racist
4: in and of itself, because all politicians have had their signs no, defaced. No, but this was with racist
3: comments, that and it was a racist, black politician. Yeah. Yeah. And finally, he cites the allegations by E.B. Smith, star, star of the mountaintop, at the grand theater of saying that he was the target of racial slurs not once but twice during his brief visit to the city quote we own a special responsibility see or hear something say something screw up enough or or yeah screw up enough courage to take a stand he writes. racism denigrates and dehumanizes it erects walls rather than building bridges it wounds it's wounds last for generations and it chases creativity talent skill and vision from our community it costs end quote Now, I agree with Corny's on the last count, which is why I still have to ask, then why are you making such a mountain out of these handfuls of molehills, some of which are not even that? Were it not for this publicity, no one would have ever been the wiser, especially the people of various races who live and work in the city. And I accept his challenge. I've seen and heard things. I've got no problem with taking a stand, and you know what I've seen? (laughs) No racism. There, I said it. I haven't seen any of that. And I'm not alone in this. As I said, all those people that called in on that show felt the same way. And as longtime listeners to this show already know, and as I pointed out on the previous time we discussed, I, I had three black brothers in law when I was during my married years. And I spent copious amounts of time in black society and in Trinidad, and they were up here. Never once in all those 25 years do I ever recall a racist incident. Not once. So clearly, What is the difference here? Something's really different. Systemic racism mars progress, says Joe Belanger in the February 6th London Free Press. Quote Lawrence Hill, one of Canada's most celebrated authors, says racial taunts are the least of worries among African Canadians. The author of the Book of Negroes says racial insults are a fact of life for many African Canadians. Hill is described as one of a number of children of American immigrants. His late father, Daniel G. Hill, was black. He was a renowned sociologist, civil servant, human rights specialist, and historian, as well as the, get this, the first full-time director of the Ontario Human Rights Commission. Hmm. Government connection. What a remarkable coincidence that this individual who insists that racism is a major factor should have such connections. But get this. Quote, Smith said the systemic problems are evident in most government and non-government organizations. For instance, theater. Theater, get this where there are a lot of black actors, but few decision-makers. Decision-makers who have the power to ensure various ethnic voices are heard on the stage. So if that's what Smith calls decision-making, what he's advocating is racism. It's a racist agenda about racism for racism against whites. He he thinks decision-making is about making sure whites aren't on the stage. That's
4: racist. That's racist. He is a racist. Absolutely.
3: And at the same time, he says there's a lot of black actors. Well, that speaks well. That means there's a demand for them. Well,
4: good. You know what the population of the blacks is in the United States? Uh, My last reading, I think, was like 16%. Yeah. You know, a very small proportion of people in the United States are black. You know, the fact that you might have a a whole comedy troupe or a whole theater troupe with no no blacks in there is quite statistically,
3: you know, um, very likely to happen. Absolutely. So, get this. Quote, Systemic racism, said Hill has always been part of the experience for African Canadians who are taught little or nothing about Canadian history that includes black people. Hill pointed to Ontario, Quebec, New Brunswick, and Nova Scotia where black history goes back centuries, yet their experiences of racism are unknown. Quote. So think about that. To Hill, history is about relating experiences of racism. That's what it is to him. And he's not even talking about race. He's talking about color. One color either black or white. And this has no value, zero, especially to history. An account of suffering and oppression will explain nothing about its causes. As far as slavery goes, my own personal history as a white person of German ancestry, I don't have to go back further than my own parents and grandparents. I've already related the story of my grandfather having been enslaved at the end of World War II by the Russians, who then followed up by systematically starving him to death. That happened in the Ukraine. Between white people... And white people. End of story. So please don't cry me a river about your racist past suffering, because I can assure you that suffering and oppression was not caused because of your skin color. It has to do with the color of the ideas of the oppressors, if they even exist. Someone who refused to associate with you is not an oppressor. Forced association is not the answer. Now Hill was quoted as making one observation, with which I agree. Quote, many black parents today worry about their children, if they're being respected and stimulated, or if they're being told they'll never amount to much, he said. And it's just so insidious when a child knows not much is expected of them. The systemic challenges are far more significant, although it's ugly and horrible to be confronted openly by racism, end quote. Of course, in this latter regard, he was referring to B.E. Smith, the actor who reported the use of the N-words. And then, of course, Here's what's happening in our own city of London in terms of race. London City Hall report. Diversity report lacks answers, says Squire. This is a report by Patrick Maloney, February 16th. And apparently the city wants a way to measure how they can uh, make our employees in the city racially, uh, have a racial of the right races to how the city's made up, right? And what they want to do is, uh, I don't know how they're going to, he says the problem is they can't measure it, okay? In other words, is this program uh, accomplishing what we want it to do? We want a workforce that is a mirror or looks like London.
4: Well, you know, what if that
3: data came out and said
4: that, well, we have too many blacks employed in City Hall. We have to fire some of you guys because there are vast more white people in London, Ontario, than
3: there are blacks. Fascinating
4: I mean, you. you can go around for a week without seeing a black person in London, Ontario. And so if you find yeah. two black people in a department at, at London City Hall, you now have to fire one of them to make it more racial. Well, what racism? That's what I said at the beginning
3: of the show. There's, there's a lot of racism in London, but it's at City Hall. That's right. I agree. And, you know, accompanying the print version of the London Free Press report is a picture of the report that was given to them by City Hall with the following description under the picture. Quote, As if to underscore political frustration over City Hall's lack of workplace diversity, Councillor Virginia Ridley noted a slick report on the issue includes several photos of people, most of whom are white. It was one of several points of debate on Thursday, right? And, of course, they're creating a new position, in the the Human Resources Department, $100,000 annually for the proposed job, uh, freed up by a rejig of so-called assessment growth cash, or, in other words, new tax revenue. Okay, so we're paying for this. Now, if I were a counselor at that meeting, I don't know if I could have stopped myself from either calling the advocates what I think they are, or just walk out of the meeting in pure disgust. Measuring the so-called success of the, their diversity objectives is as easy as one, two, three, Robert. And you just—you just gave us an example. Except to do so would make it obvious you're a racist. If you want to mirror of the city, here's all you got to do. First, you take a census of everyone's race who lives in the city, and by not—not not their race, sorry, the color of their skin. Then, determine by the numbers what percentage are white, black, Asian, or other racial groups that can be identified by skin color, since ethnicity and culture differs incredibly within each color group. Then make sure that all of your municipal employees are apportioned exactly in the same colors. Fire the excess of whites. Hire a shortage of whatever other colors of fascism you can dream up. Simple as one, two, three, done. That's the only way you can do it. And any other kind of talk about doing it is pure BS from top to bottom. And you get this other issue. Here's, an, here's, the, here's the white side of the issue. White power groups spreading, says the London Free Press. Douglas Quinn, originating from the National Post. February 13th. Canada's right-wing extremist movement is a motley crew of white supremacists, anti-government sovereignists, and pro-militia crusaders who, despite being disorganized and prone to booze-fueled infighting, are more extensive and more active than most people think, says a new study. We see the right-wing extremism movement rear its ugly head once in a while, but it just doesn't really gain the same traction as Islamist extremists, said Perry and Ryan Scrivens, whose findings were published this month in the journal Studies in Conflict and Terrorism, quote. First, you know, people who see themselves as part of a group, particularly one founded on race, are not on the right of the spectrum, which represents individualism, individual rights, freedom and capitalism. That's the right of the spectrum. So-called right-wing racists are entirely situated on the left, which represents collectivism, group rights or no rights, totalitarianism and tyranny, and state control of the economy. How you can call that right-wing in any way, shape, or form or right is ridiculous. Racism is merely incidental to the root cause of racism, and as long as so-called terrorist experts like this do not understand that, they have no hope of assessing the situation nor its cause. And of course, we have now the province of Ontario, anti-racism office 10 years later. Ontario's establishing an anti-racism directorate 10 years after it promised to do so. Kathleen Wynne says the focus on issues of racism has sharpened over the past year, but there's no budget or business plan for it. And she says her announcement's an economic one, not just one about race. Well... Decisions of economics never take race into account. All that matters in economics is productivity and profitability. So, what can you say about that? All I can say is that to lump all black people into a single collective, black, is perhaps the most tragic and insulting thing you can do to keep that group of people down and shut out from the greater society. What seems clear to me is that those who like using the term black history and who otherwise describe activities or ideas of being black, clearly do see it that way. For them, there's no distinctions between a black Jamaican, Trinidadian, South African, Egyptian, European, British, Canadian, or American. Ironically, the same people will see distinctions between what might be called white history. Between Italians, Poles, you know, Czechoslovakians, Germans, they're all different, but they're all skin color white. And... So, you know, some things are black and white and skin color is definitely not one of them. Skin color is irrelevant to all issues of cause and effect. Though so it can be used as an excuse or an assim- a symbol of something else and just about anything else. But those with racist ambitions, and I include President Obama, Prime Minister Trudeau, Ontario Premier Kathleen Wynne and company, and the majority of city councillors in London, Ontario, who have made skin colour their symbol of collectivism, and in so doing, keep making their own stated goal of broad social acceptance and integration a complete impossibility. The contradiction between their stated objective of inclusion and their practice of segregating history itself based on color is too much for this small mind to comprehend. Yet, daily in our newspapers, I read about our local politicians trying to redesign the city to be inclusive. And the victim culture of today no longer celebrates its one freedom, but its long past enslavement period, during which every day was uneventful, as uneventful as the day before and the day after. There was no such thing as history as such to report. It seems to me that all essential history is a history of freedom or of tyranny, and of the specific events that led to how mankind ended up in either condition. Everything else is just a story, not a history. Relevant history is that which explains certain sequences of events that have led to the conditions that are in the present, but rarely offers insight into cause and effect, a subject we so deeply jumped into a couple of weeks ago. So now before we continue our discussion, the etymology and history of the n-word is really irrelevant to our case today, but it, it was the issue that, was, that brought this to fore here in London, uh, and which concerns the current usage of the term, most specifically in the United States and Canada, because none of these associations I discovered really apply outside North America. That's why, personally, I have never used the N-word to describe anyone on a personal level, and I personally refuse to either use it privately or publicly. And, uh, you know, it's among those words, Robert, you and I have agreed not to air on this show, along with the F-word and the S-word, and perhaps one or two others. But today, we're going to make an exception. Censoring or bleeping the N-word from our following audio bite would, I think, be defeating its purpose and robbing it of its power, and I think that when most of you hear it, you will agree. So for for the very first, and possibly for the last time ever on our show, we're going to make an exception to this self-imposed restriction on a word that we generally would not broadcast. So, if any of you react like I do to the following story, you might even want to have a Kleenex or handkerchief ready at your disposal starring James Coburn and Godfrey Cambridge from the 1967 film The President's Analyst.
5: I had a weird dream last night. Good. Tell me about it. I can and I can't. I woke up. No, it was a nightmare, and it woke me up. But I couldn't remember it.
0: When you couldn't remember it, did you think about anything?
5: That was weird, too. I suddenly remember something that happened to me when I was a kid. Something I had not thought about since it happened. What was it, darling? It was the day I found out about niggers.
2: hmm
5: I don't feel like lying down. You. Mind if I sit over there? No, go ahead. I was five. And I knew there were colored people and white people. But then Mama took me to school. And it was almost all white kids. And nothing much happened on the first day. But on the second day, I was walking to school alone. My big brother, he was already in third grade and When you got a kid brother in kindergarten, it can be kind of an embarrassment, so... He ran on ahead to be with his buddies. Anyhow, there was a group of white kids on the street up ahead. And as I came up... They started laughing and running and yelling. Run, run, here comes the nigger. Run, run. Here comes the nigger. And I looked around. I didn't see any niggas. But if they wanted to play, so did I. So I started laughing and running and yelling. Run, run, here comes the nigger!" Run, run. Here comes the nigger! Suddenly there was my big brother. And I ran up to him. I started yelling, run, run, here comes the nigger. He hit me. And he did something worse. He told me what a nigger was. And that I was it. How would you feel about that, Don? A hate flashed in me. I started to hit my brother. I hated him and I hit him. I hated me. And I hit him.
2: the only shoes you got? They plumb worn out, sir. (laughs) I I was gonna fix them so I can handle my work, sir. Uh, I got your horse all saddled and ready for town, sir. Mr. Colton,
0: you are a ranch hand, not a servant. I do not want you
2: waiting on me. I just does what's proper, sir. And that gumbo accent, why are you hiding behind it? I don't understand, sir. How's a field hand? It's how's I was talks. Yesterday you told me Lee Singh was staying on. Yeah, that's what he said, sir. Well, he said it in Cantonese.
0: Now, I served under Sherman, then with the Ninth Cavalry in Texas. And you are the first field hand I ever met that spoke Chinese.
2: I take your point.
0: Just asking. You got a right to privacy.
2: I am. I was a slave down at a Dixon Holding, Alabama. I escaped in 62 and came out here.
0: Well, how'd you escape being captured?
2: I was a school teacher. I wrote myself the necessary papers. A runaway slave is rarely suspected of literacy. But now. Emancipation's a law. Why still play ignorant? The law has changed. My color didn't.
0: I take your point, sir. Mr. Colton, people can change. The world's changed. Why out here? Any man can reinvent
2: himself. I'd like to believe that. See, I
0: came out here because I wanted my life to be different. I believe that's the way the world gets better. One person at a time.
3: Well, there's no one person at a time when everyone wants to move as a collective, is there? You know, any man can reinvent himself. That's the way the world gets better. Well, if you're part of a collective from which you cannot escape... How can you reinvent yourself if constantly people are defining you by your skin color or other reasons? And then there is that word, you know, run, run, from the N-word. A story just told by Godfrey Cambridge. I think it's one of the saddest and perhaps most powerful stories we've ever featured on the show. And yet it reflects an experience that is well within every individual's capacity to relate. And in the end, it's not about the color of someone's skin. It's about collectivism and groupism, and kids especially are notorious for grouping themselves with and against each other, often picking different sides from day to day. That's certainly how I remember a lot of my childhood. And I have been called things similar to that. When I told my mother that story about the N-word and and Godfrey Cambridge's story, she reminded me the same thing happened to me when I was a kid, only in my case it was the K-word. I was a kraut, okay? mm-hmm. and the kids were all picking on me. Because we, we moved to Canada in the 50s, and that was not long after the war. And so one day I came home saying, hey, they're calling me this K-word, a kraut. And my mother explained, well, she said, don't worry about it. That's just because of your German, you know, that's one of the foods of the of, of the culture. You know, the British, they're limeys, etc. And I understood all that, and it, and it made it all go away. And it never happened again. Next day we were picking on some other kid for some other reason, right? And I was with the crowd, and some other kid was on the out. But the N-word is, in my humble opinion, very different from all other uh, racial and cultural slurs, at least as used in North America, because of what that specific word does symbolize. And I find it truly offensive, but not because of its racial implications, even though race is the defining point of this slur. And the N-word... comes with a different set of implications. It's not like the K-word or Limey or anything like that. It goes way beyond race and into the sinister philosophy of determinism and the denial of free will, which can be advanced using any given collective. By finding out he was the N-word, that angry young boy in that story was being told that because of the color of his skin over which he had no choice or volition, he was being told he'd forever be segregated from the rest of society. And worse, that there's no future for him in which he'll ever be able to determine his own destiny, free from the prejudices and legal restrictions of others. And, And let's face it, you've got plenty of reasons to get angry if you believe that those around you will always be in your way or refuse to treat you as an equal in the living of your life because of something that's not only irrelevant, but over which you have no control. In a word, it is unjust. And any rational individual with any color of skin will completely understand that. But reliving that past, and including and using stories of racism of a past as as a means of ending that kind of thinking, is so counterproductive that it stands as proof positive that even when the topic is ostensibly about history, nobody learns the essential lessons of history. Because that would translate into philosophy. You know, it's been said repeatedly that history is written by the victors after any given outcome of conflict or war between two political or cultural adversaries. And this leads to skepticism of history as being anything we can rely on or discover any principles that could guide us to more rational behaviors in the future. But it's important to understand that there is an objective account of history available, which can be compiled and integrated from various sources, which would leave little doubt that there's an accurate accounting of the events of the day. Yet in the midst of all this skepticism of history, the same people are of, you know, who, are, who are of this mind will also say quite assuredly that history repeats itself, which literally <laughs> means history, which literally, rather, history is never really done. The patterns of life repeat themselves, but not history itself. History is not an account of day-to-day events unless these events are integrated into the greater story that tell even a greater story over a time period or identified era, such as the Dark Ages, in which the patterns of life repeat themselves in a greater, greater collective pattern. So you could say every individual has a history as a person, every country has a history as a nation, every culture has a history, a culture being described as a body of knowledge and values. Colors do not have histories. <laughs> I'm sorry. It's just ridiculous on the face of it. But the way, especially the way you just said it. Yeah, well, you, you, you have to think of it in the right way. Yes. Um, every categorized collective or activity has a history. Not skin colors, unless, unless, of course, you're actually biologically investigating the origin of a given Homo sapiens classification of some sort, right? Or studying disease or something like that. But take, for example, the history of classic cars. What would you need to have a history of that? First, you'd have to have hindsight to even know that the classic cars would become classics, (laughs) which they would never be regarded as in their own right. All histories begin at the point at which we predetermine what they are a history of, precisely as described in the context of Aristotle's four modes of causality that we've been discussing uh, since a few weeks ago. And I recall Dr. Daniel Robinson saying in one of his lectures, when he was talking about the Dark, age, he said, dark Ages, he said the people who lived during the Dark Ages were completely unaware of the fact that they were living <laughs> during the Dark Ages. Right? They didn't wake up in the morning yeah. and say, oh, oh dear, oh. another day in the Dark Ages. Right? No, no not a clue. <laughs> and the darkness, of course, was referring to the absence of the light of reason as the guiding morality of the time. In every sense of that word, it can be easily argued that we are today regressing into a period of darkness. Remembrance Day is set aside to recall history, which often misfocuses on the irrelevant. The Canada of today is the Germany of yesteryear that our veterans went to fight, and we've talked about that a lot on the show. So, with all this talk about Black History Month and how racist London, Ontario apparently is, it shocks me to no end that there is so little discussion about this landmark in London, Ontario. Did you get the picture I sent you? uh... I couldn't open the file. Oh, well, I'll have to send it to you again. Um. It's the meeting tree in London, Ontario, right here in London. 250-year-old oak, okay, and it uh, I'm trying to see where it's located here. It's London's first recognized heritage arbor, and it's also known as the freedom tree. It served as a rendezvous point of the Underground Railroad, where former slaves would meet ab- aboli- <laughs> abolitionists Sorry, before establishing themselves in the London area. Uh, Robert Keane of Trees Ontario, he's a CEO, said, considering Canada is relatively a young nation, there aren't hundreds of years worth of historical buildings to be seen, but stressed stories surrounding natural landmarks demonstrate nat- national heritage. What we do have is these living monuments. These are our living, uh, our heritage, right? And uh, apparently, this tree is located on the Maze Like Trail in the Westminster Ponds area. So oh. you have to look at, at it in that area for anybody living in the London area. We'll put a picture of it online for you. But here's something interesting. I didn't see any black people associated with any stories about the meeting tree. Check, Google it online. You know, I didn't hear anyone mention the slave song "Following the Drink, Follow the Drinking Gourd, which spoke of the constellation in the sky pointing to the North Star mm-hmm. that paved the way to freedom for slaves in the state. To Canada, by the way and which happens to be the theme song of the Freedom Party of Ontario. Listen to many of Freedom Party's past election ads, and you'll hear that song in the background, played by none other than F.P. leader Paul McKeever himself. But of course, we don't play the color or racist card, only the freedom card. It could easily be demonstrated that white people freed the slaves in the United States, not black people. But that too would not be an accurate statement, because it was the economics of emerging capitalism in the United States, that freed the slaves that was the cause today's form of cultural slavery is the welfare state uh, you know the so-called black culture in america is predominantly that of the inner city welfare states that's what we hear as black culture and it's totally different from blacks living in other countries let me tell you or blacks living north of 8 miles yeah <laughs> you know and Obama is, I call Obama a racist not because of his skin color, but because he's a liberal socialist with a, with, with a racist agenda. Kathleen Wynne and Justin Trudeau and London City Councilors are all on the same collective. And, you know, it's funny, from our Star Trek Enterprise opener today, quote, the Wallachians give the Menk whatever they need, food, clothing, medicine. They don't let them own fertile land, but boy, they're good to them, aren't they? They protect them. And that's what Kathleen Wynne and all our politicians are doing to the races that they feel are inferior. That's the only way I can interpret this. So, the horrors of Nazi Germany arose from its history as a welfare state. Job creation, social welfare and health care since Bismarck of the late 1800s and the predictable road to economic bankruptcy and ruin. And oh, what a racist nation the good-hearted people of Germany became. Given our current political direction in the blackening of history, our next so-called repeating of history may not be so kind.
1: Despite the Mank's insistence that they're treated well, my human crewmates seem to see things differently.
3: Tick, tick.
2: Well, that's the last one.
1: They think the Mank are being exploited by the Balakians. So their first instinct is to rise to their defense, Despite the fact that the menk don't appear to need or want a defender. Wait a moment. Impressive. What'd he do? He's grouped the samples together by family, cross referenced by bloodlines and marriage, if I'm interpreting the color codes correctly. Tik Tik. On the surface, the Mank appear to be a primitive species, unsophisticated even by human standards. Uh, no offense. But their abilities appear to have been underestimated, even by myself.
2: It seems like a vacation. I didn't keep remembering why we were here. This really doesn't bother you. What? way the Wallachians treat them.
1: Why should it? On most worlds with two humanoid species, one would have driven the other to extinction. Here, they've developed a symbiotic relationship that seems to work quite well.
2: They force the men to live in compounds. They treat them almost like pets.
1: Their culture is different. It's their way.
2: Doesn't make it right. You see this?
1: Put your right hand in the box. What's in the box? Pain. Stop. Put your hand in the box. I hold at your neck the Gomja bar. This one kills only animals. Are you suggesting a duke's son is an animal? Let us say, I suggest you may be human. Your awareness may be powerful enough to control your instincts. Your instinct will be to remove your hand from the box. If you do so, you die. You will feel an itching... Now the itching becomes burning. Heat upon heat upon heat. Burn. Silence! Silence! I must not fear. Fear is the mind killer. Fear is the little death that brings total obliteration. I will face my fear. I'm permitted to pass over me and through me. I must not fear. feel flesh. I speak Death brings total alteration. I will face my flesh. I'm not being off here. Here is the little death. I must
2: not fear. Here is the little death. I'm. The pain! No!
4: Enough! You're listening to Just Right on WBCQ 5.110 megahertz, And that was a little clip from David Lynch's Dune.
3: Yeah, it was was, creepy.
4: uh, Yeah, very creepy. Do you remember that movie? Have you seen it? I haven't seen it. Oh, it is a a rather eerie, stylistic movie, and I highly recommend it. I find it quite appropriate for my discussion on fear. That is, if we consider the box in that clip, the idiot box or television, and the fear to be the fear which the news media tries to instill in us, (laughs) even though it is quite actually... Illusory.
3: Don't, don't tell me the box in the original was actually a TV. It wasn't. was it? <laughs> No, it was just a little box that the guy put okay, his hand I in. Yeah. But that's a great analogy. I think it actually offers yeah. makes more sense of it than the re- someone who hasn't heard it yet or seen it before. Yeah.
4: Now the refrain that um, Paul Atreides, who was the character in the show, was was citing to himself in his mind to overcome his fear was, "Quote: Fear is the mind killer." Fear is the little death that brings total obliteration. I will face my fear. I will permit it to pass over me and through me. And when it has gone past, I will turn the inner eye to see its path. Where the fear has gone, there will be nothing. Only I will remain. And that is the um, the mantra he kept trying to recite as his, he felt what he thought was his hand burning in this box. Fear, as promoted by the media is the mind killer. It has our undivided attention. It can make us do irrational things, make us panicked, out of, act out of haste rather than reason, which is why we have to be able to distinguish between those things we absolutely need to fear and those things which we do not. Now, I've recently begun listening to the 40s radio station on Sirius XM, and, I, and the thought crossed my, my mind that when people were swinging to this music, there was You mean by the, by the you mean the 1940s. The 1940s, yeah. Yeah, okay. yeah. when well, people were swinging to that particular genre of music, there was a world war going on. Hitler was in power in Germany murdering millions. Stalin was in power in the USSR murdering millions. And FDR was in power in the United States using the fear which comes with war to form the basis for an American socialist revolution he dubbed the New Deal. I wondered what the man on the street thought of when he heard such gay and jaunty tunes from people like Kay Kaiser, Jimmy Dorsey, and Billy Holiday. Were they forgetting that there was a war on, or did they just not care? Did they turn to such music as an escape to forget the war and the headlines in the newspapers, or was this just a natural thing for people to do? They couldn't have lived lives of fear and desperation every minute of every day while the world was going up in flames, so they kept calm and carried on, which, by the way, was a, a slogan of the British during the war. For those overseas fighting the Fuhrer and the Emperor, it would have been a bit different, of course. They really had something to fear. But for those at home, in the factories, and the shoe stores, it had to be pretty much life as usual, except for the things like rationing and being inundated day, and day, day in and day out with appeals to buy war bonds. Then... While watching an episode of Big Bang Theory Just recently, season 9, episode 13 If you want to look it up um, I read Chuck Lorre's Vanity Card at the end of the episode. Have you ever seen those, Bob? Yes,
3: and and you have to freeze your screen yes. <laughs> uh, to be able to read them. I've read the odd ones, and they have some very interesting editorial commentaries on them. A lot of them are quite humorous. Oh yeah, yeah. or or something humorous. Yeah, yeah. It only appears for about a second. Yeah. You, so you've you got to have a, a digital it. system. Don't yeah. <laughs> do not try this on your analog machine. <laughs> well, Chuck Lorre, who's I think is a
4: great comedic writer, he put into words much of what I I was thinking about regarding fear and daily life. This is what Laurie had to say in that card, quote, President Roosevelt famously said, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Now, let's take a moment and ask ourselves which presidential candidates and cable news networks are actively promoting fear. Which one of these people and corporate entities are determined to scare your pants off in the hopes that you'll either vote for them or stay tuned? Or let's approach this from a different angle. After millions of years of evolution, or six days of divine creation, it doesn't really matter which, our brains are wired to seek out danger and respond accordingly. Fight or flight. Or, if it's not trying to eat you, negotiate. It makes sense, then, that presenting a threat to our survival is a time-tested way to get the brain's attention. And let's be clear about one thing. Attention is the most valuable commodity in the world. Once you have someone's attention, you can sell them something. Or, if you're the kind of person who is frightened of self-determined people, control them, while reassuring them that your only concern is their right to be self-determined. That is not to say, he says parenthetically, that there aren't people who have ample reason to be afraid. I'm just going to go out on a limb here and say, you're probably not one of them. (laughs) So the real question (laughs) to ask yourself is not, who or what should you be afraid of? It's how are you doing right now? Go ahead, ask yourself. Are you in jeopardy right now? Of course not. You're squinting at this vanity card and perhaps wondering if there's a clever joke at the end of it. And spoiler alert, there's not. (laughs) This means that whatever you're afraid of or being encouraged to be afraid of is in your mind. It's not in your living room or just outside your door. You are thinking it, which is good news. That's the one thing you have control over. At any moment, you can take a break from thinking scary thoughts. Or, if you're like me and have a a mind run amok, you can choose to ignore them. Even better news, once you're free of your self-imposed fear, you're much much less likely to seek out an old white guy to protect you. Now that's what Chuck Lorre... Boy, he he
3: crammed a lot into
4: that one. He did, and it got my attention, which prompted me, along with listening to the 40s music, to write this particular segment. Laurie was no doubt referring, by the way, to the current election campaigns in the United States and the media's ongoing attempt to sell soda pop to to the frightened masses. We aren't involved in a world war at the moment, so the media must conjure up some other fears, real or imagined, to garner our very valuable attention. Today, it's the Mexicans streaming across the border for Donald Trump, the loss of constitutional freedoms for Ted Cruz, the greedy hoarding of wealth by the one percenters for Bernie Sanders, and the carbon footprint destroying the planet for Hillary Clinton. Fear upon fear upon fear. Each candidate is hoping that their special fear will be your special fear. The cable companies. All of them, by the way, and I think that Chuck Lorre was probably talking about one, but all of them are raking in the dough as we tune in to see which fair will win out. It is quite a spectacle, actually, quite a bit of theater. But as Chuck Lorre observed, you can choose to ignore the whole bunch of them and still go on your with your life unchanged. Mexicans crossing the border are not the problem. Your fear is. Fear is the mind killer. Your carbon footprint isn't the problem; your fear of it is. Laurie does not make a uh, does make a parenthetical point as I mentioned that there are people who have ample reason to be afraid. But like the musicians and artists of the 1940s, he'd rather spend his life working at his craft. For those of us who forget from time to time that we are supposed to be afraid, but I'd like to think that it isn't as simple as all that. There are not simply two kinds of people those who have ample reason to be afraid and those who do not i think we all have ample reason to be afraid from time to time but we must be selective about what is worthy of fear and what and we, and we can't live our lives in constant fear just like the folks in the 40s they had ample reason to be afraid but that didn't stop them from living life providing for their families and going out on the town every now and then to sway to Artie Shaw and his orchestra. Today is really no different than in the 1940s. I know Hitler, Stalin, FDR are no longer a problem but we have our own troubles. We have every right to be afraid that bringing in 50,000 Middle Eastern immigrants will increase the likelihood that they will bring in their anti-life ideology to mainstream Canada and the United States. We have ample reason to be afraid of the distinguishing of the disintegrating rather, economy. We have ample reason to fear the dumbing down of our children in the nation's schools. These are legitimate fears, which will not be overcome by dropping a couple of atom bombs on Japan or sending a million men onto the shores of France. These threats are constant, and they'll take nothing less than a cultural revolution to hold them at bay. Every year, there have been fears brought up which are only apocalyptic paper tigers. Here's some of them. Anthrax, SARS, avian flu, climate change, swine flu, Y2K, AIDS, Ebola, the coming ice age, global warming, the epidemic of kids with ADD, cancer by cigarettes, red dye number two, and pollution, the love canal, DDT, the Zika virus, acid rain, the hole in the ozone layer, drug-crazed criminals roaming the streets, Three Mile Island, Chernobyl, Fukushima, tsunamis, hurricanes, tornadoes, the list goes on and on and on. Each isolated fear blown up to make you believe that the world is on the brink of some pandemic disease, environmental crisis, political revolution, or nuclear meltdown. Many of these fears we come across in the media have absolutely nothing to do with us and yet we act as if we are at the epicenter of each new epidemic fear or terrorist threat. I've heard of one American who wrapped his entire house in plastic in case there was a release of anthrax into the air. I've personally had an American customer of mine destroy a package I sent him it was a video he had ordered because he didn't recognize the P.O. box return address and thought it might have been anthrax. I'm not kidding. He called me up asking me to send, me, send him another one. <laughs> when he didn't receive that one because he he had destroyed it. <laughs> People commit acts of violence and vandalism against businesses because the media have given them the idea that capitalism is destroying the planet. Thousands protest on Wall Street because they have no idea what's going on on Wall Street. But they have a vague feeling that it's not good. Israeli school kids go through drills on how to don gas masks. Uh, no, wait. They have every right to fear an attack from their neighbors. That's that's a legitimate one. Okay. Many of the fears and scares are single events in particular locations which have been dealt with by doctors, scientists, or yes, sometimes even legislators. Lead and gasoline is causing brain damage in kids. Outlaw lead and gasoline. Problem solved. Done. Good. Let's move on to the next one. The latest virus is killing hundreds of people in some African country you've never heard of. Doctors isolate the virus, create a vaccine, people recover. Good. Done. Some senator gets a letter with anthrax inside. Don't worry, you're not a U.S. senator. Keep calm and carry on. These threats, for the most part, are not part of your reality. They are illusions only, shadows without substance. They are appearances only, nothing but ghosts of reality. They are lies. Doctor, in your opinion, what killed Mr. Chekhov?
0: A piece of lead in his body wrong. His mind killed him. Well, come on, Spock. If you've got the answer, tell us. All of this is unreal. What do you mean, unreal? I examined Chekhov. He's dead. But you made your examination under conditions which we cannot trust. We judge reality by the response of our senses. Once we are convinced of the reality of a given situation, we abide by its rules. We judge the bullets to be solid, the guns to be real. Therefore, they can kill him. Chekov is dead because he believed the bullets would kill him. He may indeed be dead. We do not know. But we do know that the Malkotians created the situation. If we do not allow ourselves to believe that the bullets are real, they cannot kill us. Exactly. I know the bullets are unreal. Therefore, they cannot harm me. We must all be as certain as you are, Mr. Spock, if we're to save our lives. Precisely. That's not possible. there would always be some doubt. The smallest doubt would be enough to kill you. We're just human beings, Spock. We don't have that clockwork ticker in our head like you do. We can't just turn it on and off. You must, Spock. The Vulcan mind melt. mind to my mind, your thoughts to my thoughts, the bullets are unreal, without body, they are illusions only, shadows without substance, they will not pass through your body they do not exist appearances only they are shadows illusions nothing but ghosts of reality they are lies falsehoods specters without body they are to
4: be ignored They are to be ignored, just like Chuck Lorre said. People have to realize that the fears of the world are not necessarily your fears. Some are, but the vast majority are not. So just ignore them and recognize them for what they are. Tragic stories of other people's lives. Tales from distant lands and complete strangers who are both so far removed from us that they may as well be tales from Mars, They are devices used by the media to sell soap and diapers. But I won't let this topic go without referring to at least one thing happening in society which we should pay attention to, if not fair. One thing besides the media's failure to put the news into perspective. It's the failure of teachers to teach children how to spot the rot when they see it. It's the failure of teachers to give children a broad knowledge of science and history so that they can immediately tell whether or not they should be concerned over a story about trans fats or
3: ozone or DDT or carbon dioxide or Mexicans. Are you sure you're talking about their failure to do so or their participation in the process of inculcating the fear?
4: Well, both, actually. I mean, their failure to do so and... They are complicit. They they are the problem. Yes, we should be afraid of them. It's the dumbing down of children we should really be afraid of. Ignorant people are fodder for the fearmongers in the media and behind the desks of every network television. It is the young adults who think that the world owes them a living in a safe space that we should be afraid of. But moreover, it's the teachers and the university professors who tell the young adults that the world owes them a living and a safe space that we should fear. It's often been said that the world has been turned on its head. In many respects, that's absolutely true, and in no place more is it of reality than in the schools and universities where those charged with imparting knowledge are now imparting ignorance, where those who are supposed to give a child a sense of confidence is giving them a sense of enlightenment in, uh, entitlement where those who should be helping to shape the minds of maturing adults are perpetuating their infancy. Don't fear the protesters on Wall Street. Fear the university professors who told them that capitalism is destroying America. Don't fear the man's impact, fear man's impact on the environment. Fear the teachers who tell you that the very act of breathing out contributes to your carbon footprint, and so your very act of living is destroying the world. As Ayn Rand said, tribalism is a product of fear, and fear is the dominant emotion of any person, culture, or society that rejects reason. The tribalists, the collectivists, know this, and that's why they've taken over the very halls of reason and knowledge, the schools and the colleges. It's these usurpers of knowledge and logic we should come to fear, and then we should work to overcome.
3: Interesting, Robert. Uh, you know, I think all fear is in the mind, even, even if it's real or unreal. And, and, oh, yeah. And so, it's an emotion. Yeah, so what, what it comes down to is you have to determine what is real, what is unreal, what is worth being afraid of. And sometimes when you're dealing with a true danger, you have to overcome that fear <laughs> to deal with it. Overcome the fear and then yeah. overcome the cause of the fear. Absolutely. So with that in mind, we want to remind you to be very afraid because we're going to be back next week when we continue our journey in the right direction. Until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. We'll see you then. Fade into color, color into black and white Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright
4: Alright, alright I see what's going on. the little pre-Halloween hijinkery.
2: <laughs> a ghostly moan, a rattling of chains, a witch's cackle, trifecta of haunted house cliches. Instead of eek, I say yawn.